0: From Koningstein Road in the east to Casitas Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, it's Brett Bradigan, editor and publisher of your Ojai magazines, the monthly and quarterly. Our guest this episode, Eric Hodge, is a local fisherman who, born and raised in Santa Barbara, been here in Ojai for quite a while. Now, I'm a fisherman myself, So it's very much fun for me to have somebody with his expertise and talking about all the exciting issues going around fishing. And I don't know if you've been to the Thursday Farmer's Market, but you'll see Eric there. I highly recommend getting on his text list because every week he's got the list of fish he's caught and how fresh and we'll discuss the amazing techniques that he's developed to keep it even fresher. Hey Eric, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks, Brett. Yeah, I've been meaning to have you on for a while because uh I'd really love to get out on a boat with you and do some fishing. <laughs> I've never done any commercial fishing, but I certainly have fished all my life and I love it. And I've been a consumer of your product for a couple of years now. Yeah. And it's amazing. So what's what's going on now? What do you what's what's it look like out there?
1: Well, <clears throat> there's a lot of ways we can go with that question um you want a little history of like me fishing and like
0: um, well this lately how's the you've been going out to what anicap or santa cruz and
1: i mainly fish at uh san miguel island in santa rosa so the two way out there yeah it's way out there so we're fishing like 40 to 60 miles out of santa barbara
0: so you got to chug out like what three four hours
1: um, my boats are pretty fast, so like two hours and 20 to three hours out. So, yeah. and, that's, and that's each way, but that's to where like the really good, you know, rockfish grounds are where we
0: can And do, what, you know. what is the depth there? That's like three, three, 400 feet. Is that what you're looking I mean,
1: at? you're, I'm fishing all the way. I, I'm generally fishing a lot of the vermilion in like 375 down to 625. So. And you're,
0: you're spotting them right on the on the fish finders you're sitting on top
1: of them oh yeah or you
0: just know where they are
1: well there's general areas you know but fish move like crazy so um seasons you know throughout the year throughout the Water, day temperatures through, yeah like like certain tides I mean who knows there's so many things going on down yeah. there you know bait larger like you know shift like you know yeah, like El Nino, La Nina, these warm water periods, these cold water periods like yeah. shift fish up and down the coast, um, you know, from Mexico to Canada and all that. So Yeah,
0: I know. They were finding marlin all the way up into like Puget Sound at what, that bad El Nino? Yeah,
1: 2015. We had like wahoo and hammerhead sharks at Santa oh, Cruz Island. Man. So, yeah.
0: And I remember tuna. I, w- I went out on a, tried to get tuna, but we didn't, didn't catch anything. Yeah. But they were catching big old. Two three hundred pound tunas right off here, like right oh the yeah, channel.
1: and and actually like two thousand and fourteen, I mean we haven't had bluefin tuna runs like this. Um, so the, there was some stuff in the El Nino of like eighty three, eighty four, yeah. Um, but before that, it was like kind of like Zane Grey, like early nineteen hundreds, like nineteen twenties, really? yeah, yeah. yeah. Zane
0: Grey, people don't know, was a dentist in Tarzana. But he <laughs> spent all of his time out on sport sport boats. Yeah, he was not a cowboy, no matter how many. How many great Westerns he wrote. He was was a sport fisherman.
1: He was a good writer, too. Right. And so that's that's really like um, I I think a lot of good writers kind of dip their toe in and they, you know, they figure out, you know, they kind of observe the experience where like a lot of like, you know. A lot of the full-time fishermen are too busy fishing and catching, you know, to write. Yeah, it's work. It's, <laughs> it's work. work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. But
0: it's like fishing is such a vivid metaphor for all kinds of things, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's really great. Yep. So um, I know I get your text every week. Yeah. You're setting up at the Thursday Farmer's Market. I had yep. uh, Julie Gerard on the podcast mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's great. I mean, just... Well, Sunday Farmers Market, I love it, of course. Yeah. But that's once a week, and they have different products and services over at this one, including yourself. You have you ever set up at the Sunday Farmers Market? No,
1: they're not a community event, so uh, that's or not organized as an actual community event. So I'd have to have like a food truck over there. Oh. And there's so no good. bathroom like within yeah. 200 feet, so that's why I'm over there. Um, it's kind of uh, you know they have the right permits and stuff, so. For me, as a like, I have a Ventura County like, you know, two health permits there, and but it requires a community event permit with a bathroom. So um, that's just what they require. So that's where I set up. So. So when you say community event, it's like
0: an activity. It's not just a business. It's like a public a public uh, gathering
1: yeah and it's got like ha- a festival or a fair totally and i think it's got to have some like non-profit stuff going on and yeah. like some community like there's like things for kids and um yeah it's quite quite a scene yeah okay. yeah it's cool there's music and it's really yeah. cool it's like people are just starting to really really kind of embrace it as a weekly thing that they do it's been going on since june I think, I, think I, I was on the board there, like, four years ago in our first, like, you know, trial location. It didn't work out. But, but I stepped down, and I, and I just kind of let them do their thing. but Yeah, um, they got it
0: done. I know uh, Julie talked about the process of getting a community farmer's market open, and it's involved, and it takes... Extremely a lot of heavy lifting and yep. scouting locations took well, years.
1: Yeah, uh, it was like a four-year process, yeah.
0: Well, I think the school district, Dr. Morris, who's been on the podcast twice now, she's key in making sure that the facilities are for the public. Totally. Yeah. Yep. Now, not to drag on the Sunday farmer's market, But it is a closed loop, and it's the, I can't remember the lady's name now. She's great. I mean, I just love that farmer's market, and it's just fun to people watch. Even if I'm not going to go buy a bunch of kale and strawberries, just watching
1: people. Oh, yeah. I mean, you you get, like, the whole weekend crew from out of town who are up here strolling through, and you have, like, a lot of the locals, too. That's, like, probably one of the strongest mixing of those two groups. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. well Thursday
0: it's younger families many of whom I don't see at the Sunday market I know of them I know like Grace's, her family's her dad teaches at Thatcher he's a woodshop teacher mm-hmm. there or was yeah, and yeah so there's a lot of local connection but so many younger families with kids have moved to Ojai especially since the pandemic right right and you can see them over there and they're good consumers and some of the I mean, there's one lady there that sells shrub, which it's like $30 a bottle, Totally, but it's worth it because it's like this, the most flavorful vinegar you could imagine for your salad dressings, but even just to put a little tea dropper full in a, in a cocktail. Yeah. totally. I wonder how you'd work that in a fish. Maybe you could do like a poaching broth or something with a little bit of vinegar. A little that. marinade or something like that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's it's really fun. Yeah. So um, last time I was there, I got you sold. You gave me, a sold me like a pound ling cod. Mm-hmm. How was that? Yeah, I did it as simple as I could. Just a little olive oil. I will mix in a little butter just for flavor. Mm-hmm. You don't need a lot of butter to get the flavor from it. People Not, think so. No. But just scorched it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with a little bit of. Uh, Creole totally. powder, just like yeah. a mix of paprika and mm-hmm. black pepper and and uh, cayenne and salt. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. It just gives it a very light little crust, mm-hmm. and then just flip it over, like a couple minutes each side. And it was a nice big meaty chunk, and it was still yeah. a little, little uh, opaque or a little transparent mm-hmm. in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I knew it wasn't overcooked. It's good, dude. It's good. They're just oh. Can't even describe the brininess, and I went there to get the halibut, and that was
1: probably sold out, huh? Yes, you yes. were. I imagine yeah, it doesn't last out. long. No, no, I'm yeah, like,
0: yeah. gonna say, I thought that was better than halibut. I think it's, it's a different texture. I like the grain. I like the thicker grain of the like the actual,
1: like the meat structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got like a thick, yeah. There's a thick kind of meatiness to it. Yeah, um, and then we ikajime all those. Pikajime, is sushi. Yeah, so what we do, um, I was pretty lucky, I, uh, just over three years ago, I had a, a chef, world-renowned chef, uh, Junya Yamasaki, who's starting three restaurants in the Arts d- District. They've been under construction in, for a uh, while. In Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Like, he, when you
0: say Arts District, is that like I'm
1: thinking Bergamot Station? I, I don't know exactly. You don't know exactly. I, I mean, okay. we, we deliver down there all the time, you know, fish, but um, it's... Uh, there's a couple of high-end restaurants that just went in Damian, like um, Enrique Oliveira's New Valley restaurant. Oh yeah, I've heard yeah. that name. Yeah, we deliver fish like three times a month to
0: them. So they must be rigorous in their sourcing. You must really have to yeah, meet, meet a high. They're threshold. pretty good. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah Jesus, um, so so Junior came to Los Angeles about just over three years ago, and he was trying to source from fishermen, and he, and he realized that the quality just we haven't been really, you know, taught how to really, you know, keep really good care of fish. Exactly, And so what happens is kind of the history of West Coast fish, especially ground fish is like high volume, but low quality. And so he was looking for a fisherman to go out on their boat and teach. And I was like, yeah, I've always enjoyed having like, you know, chefs on the boat just so they know what we do. So his first trip out with my deckhand, Taylor, and I, he threw up all day long. It (laughs) was kind of rough. But But that's commitment. Commitment. And then he came back and threw up a whole other day. But each time he was, like, studying the way we fished. And um, then he was, like, teach us each little step each time he came out. So he came out for a year and a half. He got his commercial fishing license. I ended up paying him over time to deckhand for me and he taught us uh like a lot of the finer points of yikijime which is a which is a japanese um method of dispatching fish when they come on the boat live and i think
0: you told me about that it's uh can it, you describe it it's really interesting yeah
1: so um what we do is we have we made spikes so we take like stainless yeah, steel and we grind so. them down into like little handles and spikes just the right mm-hmm. diameter and we and we punch a hole in the top of their head. And and then, and then that allows us access like the brain cavity. And so then we take a wire that comes from Japan. It's like a serrated yikijime wire. And we find the spinal column through the brain cavity. And then we, we basically run that wire all the way down to the tail. And so we're cleaning out the nerves. Yeah. And so that stops any type of... Any oh, it like stops the dying process. I've in heard track. of that,
0: fills it full of the like hist- lactic acid. Yeah, 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 exactly. People go to the emergency room from eating sushi, tuna that's been, you know, struggled and all the fear chemicals or whatever that get into their system. People have allergic reactions to that, bad allergic reactions.
1: Yeah, I'm so not that's sure. That's what but they're talking about. Yeah, bat, so, well, what's part of it? Um, there's something called ATP, which is like the proteins, enzymes, and sugars that the, um, that the cells in the meat structure, like that's what they feed off of, right? And so yeah. in, in like the 20 or 30 minutes of a suffocation process of a fish when it's dying on the, on the boat, it's using up that incredibly fast. And so yeah. all those is what give the fish like that really quality raw taste where you the, just it's very nuanced and very, um, um, like, um, like savory flavor um, mm. in the meat when you're eating so it's raw like fish.
0: a very quick, methodical
1: dispatch of that fish. That's so it's right. Not suffering. That it's no humane it just eliminates all feeling within like five seconds, and oh, then man. and then it also preserves the meat and stops the dying process. So. Uh, you, you know, a fish that you might want to eat like a day afterwards. Now we can age that fish, like dry age a fish. Yeah. These high end restaurants, and um, they can dry age it for three, four, or five, six days a week. And well, it actually age. a lifetime like, in
0: the restaurant business. Yeah,
1: so. totally. And so, um, actually, a lot of my Ikajime sushi grade fish, like you don't want to even eat till day number three. Oh, uh, because it's like
0: peaks, like yeah. flavors?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the. You know, the texture a and, bit the, of a curing. and the flavor, yeah, there's a curing process in the ice that, that you mm. want to do. And so I'll even recommend, like, if I'm fishing the day before my market, I'll recommend people wait another day or two to eat it.
0: Wow. People I, don't hear that much with fish. No, they
1: don't. And then I'm I've sure ha-
0: you've re- re- Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen <laughs> Confidential, he has a very detailed list of what not to order from restaurants on which days totally. and, like, fish... Never over the weekend, always like a Tuesday or Wednesday. Tuesday or Wednesday, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that's, that's why. But what's your preparation for
1: the ikijimi, as you call it? Um, Sometimes we do a ceviche, like a like a, what we call like a two-minute ceviche, where you're just dunking it in the lemon juice for like two or three minutes. Yeah, not
0: long and, enough for it to get opaque.
1: No, just long enough to kind of sear the outside with the acids of the lemon juice. Yeah. And then... And then you're you're adding it to your, you know, onions and chilies and, and, and garlic and chilies and, you know, cilantro and stuff like that. A little like bit that. of salt. Yeah, exactly. So I'm actually, I'm all health certified to make ceviche. So this week at the Farmer's Market on Thursday, I'll be my first week I'll have ceviche there.
0: Uh, well, this won't come out till next
1: week, but is this something regular? Oh, go? yeah. Yeah. So oh, I have. Nice. I'm going to get some of that. Yeah. So I am certified for three products right now. And um, it was written into our HACCP plan. And that was. uh ceviche poke bowls and then sashimi salads so nice yeah
0: so any of the white fish are gonna make good ceviche or do you have your
1: preferences i mean yeah i think i think the most underrated fish that makes probably the best like ceviche or or crudo would be would be what we call california tile fish, or what like most you know, sport fishermen would call ocean fish.
0: Oh yeah, and, I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, and at they're mu- very fine, fine grained. Of kind of like if you don't do them right, they're kind of mushy.
1: They can be, but yeah. when you do Ikejime and you do like a temperature control, you know, control and bagging process on the boat, yeah, it is the most, it is the most incredible sashimi I've ever had in my life. So, mm. so when Junior came out here for a year and a half, he was like testing all kinds of fish. Yeah. Right? Figuring out what. And at the after a year and a half he's like, Eric, I found my favorite fish for Sashimi. I'm like, is it you know, yellowtail? He's like, No. Is it is it is it like, you know, bluefin tuna? No. Not even he's like, uh, calico. No, it's it's ocean white fish. I'm like, no way, come on. Yeah. This, is, this is like s- such an underrated fish in Southern California that people I mean, I grew up on sport boats, they're so like, Oh yeah, ocean white fish. And so that's if, where they,
0: they put you on the whitefish when they can't catch anything else. That's that's right.
1: And it turns out these whitefish, especially like over two-pounders, they... They don't get big. Two-pounders is about the top of the... They'll get up to like 10, 12 pounds.
0: Oh, really? I've never seen one that big.
1: Yeah, they grow a pound a year. Okay. So so a five-pounder is only like five or six years old. Okay. So, um, hmm. But there's just been so much recruitment the last like... Five or seven years that they're just everywhere. So you have like a lot of little ones. Yeah. But when you do Ikejime on that fish and um, and and you do all the steps correctly, bleeding, bagging, temperature control in the ice, rebagging at the dock, it is I mean, the same type of fish is called you know, from Japan it's called Amadai. And when they catch them wild and they do this process and they sh- ship them over here, they're like 22 to $32 a pound. At sushi. At, like at, whole fish.
0: The, at the dock for the restaurateurs.
1: That's right. You know, shipped from Japan yeah, um, to the restaurants. I mean, I mean, I got a call from a, sh- like a sushi chef in Portland last year. He's like, dude, I want you to get me ocean whitefish. And I'm like, well, are you buying Amadai? He's like, yeah, they're $45 a pound in Portland. Oh, right now, and so this was a fish that we we would be getting two dollars a pound for wholesale. Wow! And now I can you know, offer it to restaurants for like eleven,
0: and they're thinking that's a great bargain. At,
1: yeah, because the other you know the, the only other option is amadai for like you know twenty six. Yeah, and so we're um, wow. Yeah, so it's really upped our value of the fish, and it's also uh, just upped our understanding of what quality is for local fish
0: wow that's fascinating yeah because i love fish but i uh, just understanding the processing makes it even more delicious oh yeah oh, yeah. yeah i mean the stories that go behind yeah food. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah
1: totally so he, i was really lucky to have him on the boat for a year and a half and then he's pretty much you know, his restaurants will be open um later this year and then he'll be buying a lot from us. Um but he opened the door for us to a lot of uh a lot of higher, higher end markets. Yeah. yeah. And then the education of ikojime, I'm actually educating and I have restaurants here in Ohio now buying, you know, you know, fifteen to twenty five you know pounds of Ikejime a week, you know, to put on their menu for raw product. And so that's it's really cool. That's something that they would never be able to offer. That you've been able to, to spread the word. Exactly. So we have other fishermen now that we've trained and trust, you know, do Ikejime and maintain that level of quality that we source from. And you know. that's like for all fish.
0: That's just better experience. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Probably I mean, better for the experience for the fish, too. Just having a quick death Oh, than it's, flopping around. It's instant. Them, yeah. They never yeah. move again. Yeah. Yeah i got to get these dayboat captains next time I go out, tell them, man, i got to do this. Start totally, this. totally. So um, where else, except for like the Channel Islands, are are there other fisheries like this? I mean, there's a little bit of good fishing up near Morro Bay, but then you really got to go down to like the banks in San Diego or something, right? Yeah, man, so. A very special area is what I'm getting at.
1: Where Southern California? Oh, the Channel Islands. Oh, yeah. We have like this mixing, right? So we have the California current coming down the coast in the winter, which is cold. And then in this, in the late spring and summer, you have the Davidson current coming up from Mexico. So you have this mixing of like colder, nutrient rich water and warmer, clearer water coming up from Mexico. And that, and that creates a, a really, um, are really diverse, where like you could go catch like um, lingcods, San Miguel Island, and yellowtail rockfish that you know, and canary rockfish that are all the way up into the Aleutians in Alaska. Really, and then you could come down to Anacapa and catch yellowtail, which is like and like, sometimes even water. the tunas. Even tuna, up, yeah. and so mahi. this is like
0: a, the overlapping of a very distinct ranges. Huh? Exactly.
1: So we, I mean, so. Yeah, as you go around Point Conception, um, which is about 40 miles above Santa Barbara, then you get into more of the more Yeah, you get yeah. into the like the central cow, nor cow species, and more, you know, colder water, where that warm water kind of stops usually, like around Point Conception. So, yeah. um, I I also fish up in Santa Cruz. We do uh, we do black cod up in Santa Cruz. Or sable fish. Yeah, sable fish. Yeah, so all because the fish are a lot. Bigger up there. We trailer up there about once a month and do about 1,800 pounds of black cod. Is this all, um, what's the chef's
0: name there? Nobu Matsuhita? Is that all because of him, isn't it? That sable fish or black cod? Because I never I don't heard about that until Nobu. Okay, okay. But it's a very involved marinating process because it's a very oily fish, it's really fatty. And then when you marinate it in this various soy. Preparation with lots of sweet on it, and it caramelizes. It's really a very gorgeous. It's amazing, huh? yeah. yeah, yeah. So, have you had it good. before? Oh yeah, yeah. I've yeah. had it from you, I think. Yeah, oh, yeah. Black cod, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting how the names change because of the market demands. And I do want to have this conversation with you. Might as well have it now, because you know the overfishing and overharvesting. That's some of the species that we'll never see again. I grew up in the Great Lakes, and we used to have, I mean, that's walleye country, one of the most delicious fish in the world. I mean, you can make arguments for all kinds. I think walleye are almost as good as yellow perch, Mm. which is their smaller cousin. But we also used to have this blue pike, which is, Mm. they called them, they had another name for them too, but blue pike is a kind of an in between walleye and yellow perch mm-hmm. and they were wiped out back in the sixties. They used to have a big commercial fishery because they were you know the Friday fish totally, fries. Totally. And then that that's happened to a bunch of species. Remember back in the eighties there was like orange ruffy was like a big thing. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah. And then oh, they got oh, fished out got completely.
1: Fished out. So we're we're actually if I can interject here. So we're on the other side of that in California and the West Coast. So um you know, sixties and seventies, nineteen sixties and seventies was kind of was kind of a, kind of a free for all, right? We had Loran, kind of came out in the seventies, which is land based. Lu- Loran? Oh. Loran was land based, like uh, navigation, and that was, you know, that was like that was like right before GPS, like about fifteen years, maybe twenty years, and that's what airplanes use, but they they started making one for boats and so the first time in the 70s you could have like commercial fishing boats get within 100 feet of the same rock yeah over and over again right and they didn't have to meet around i mean you had a little box with like two numbers on it and you you wouldn't found it and so what happened is they can get they could pinpoint exactly and they'd like and they would store all these you know, numbers and, and now they could basically map out the ocean and, and get within a and, hundred feet. Fishing banks. That's right. And, and so, right and so they, what happened was, um, I mean, in the sixties, you had like Russian trawlers, you know, in San Diego yeah, and stuff and Japanese trawlers too. Yeah. And then we, you know, we booted everything out. All the, all the foreign trawl, you know, fleet with the Magnus and Stevens act in 1976. So, after 1976, within 200 miles, we owned that, you know, American, That's, yeah.
0: Yeah, pushed out the limit for international That's right. waters. Yeah. But the
1: harm had kind of started at that point because, yeah. I mean, you know, my good friend you know, John Law said in the, in the late '60s in San Diego, he's an old-time fisherman in San Diego. He said how they would rock fish was actually just follow the Russian trawlers around. Oh God! And no. and all the fish like that would get out of the net would be just floating behind the trawlers, and they just go oh because they buy kill. Is that's that what right. they call it? Bite catch? You, or, yeah. Or they just know. got out of the net. So um, so that's a little bit of history of of uh, you know '60s '70s by the you, you, you know by the '80s they hadn't quite you know, caught up in, in management. And so yeah. you had a declining of these species because there was like no closed areas, no seasons, no size, limits, no harvest. No it was harvest limit. nothing. And so by the time the eighties came around, you started to see some like, Whoa, some red flags here. Right. And then, um, 1990s were the year of the clamping, like between 90 and 2001, everything just kind of like, you had this like, a lot of warm water, which pushed a lot of the ground fish out and north. And so, this, you know, stocks went low anyways because they moved. But then you have like, you know, three decades of over harvesting. It's really come a cropper. Time yeah. to pay the piper. That's right. And so, what a lot of the East Coast fisheries are having to do now, we already did 25, 30 years ago. So, we, um, our first like, Shelf rockfish quota went in in 1994. That was I mean, that's 27 years ago, and then and everyone got out of that fishery because they couldn't make a living because all they were allowed was like I think like 1,200 pounds a month. Can't About. make a living on that. No, I mean they were doing like 1,200 pounds a day, and so yeah. how do you make a living on that? You know, so everyone got out, and then they moved to black gill rockfish, was the deeper, which is still like wide open. And I said,
0: what black gill? What's just black gill rockfish? Yeah, black
1: gill. And then they, they put a hammering on that for the next 10 years until management came in. And so what it's been is like a, a, a very strong, about a 10-year period, especially with ground fish, with a limiting, right? So they went to like limited entry permits, the state and the federal. Did
0: they do a lottery or something for the permits? Uh, the
1: pot, uh, You were grandfathered in based if you had enough landings over a certain amount of years. Yeah. And so I actually purchased one of those, actually two permits. In the last year, I purchased a federal online permit uh, from someone who is grandfathered in, and then uh, I, I purchased a, uh, a deeper nearshore state permit um, from someone who is grandfathered in too. So now I have you know two permits um, that allow me to access more quota and more species. And so um, and and then I'll probably buy one more permit in the next couple of years and that just and what um
0: talk about the methods and techniques now you're a long liner tip mostly
1: okay so i have i fish like three different gear types one's hook and line so we just use like fishing rods um and, and what do you like use fishing lures.
0: rods for the lean cod just to drop lean cod, down.
1: ocean white fish a yeah. uh, blue rock fish and what are
0: you fishing with like, like uh sardines or um squid or I, what
1: i mean live mackerel for link cod's the best so yeah. um but we'll fish big, like, big, like, r- rubber scampies and stuff with we'll, we'll a piece of squid on it, you know? Yeah. And so um, that's that's a typical lingcod lure. And then and then we fish, like, blue rockfish, like, f- you know, four or five hooks at a time in really shallow, like close to 60, bar. 70
0: feet or less. Oh, yeah. We get them schooling, like, right under the boat. Just, just keep Yeah, flying. I've seen that. That's where you catch your yellowtails, too, because they're like the wolf, pa- wolf packs of the sea, right? Aren't they going after the shallower banks like
1: um yeah they um but that's a little southern that's like anacapa and santa cruz and santa barbara island not so san miguel not San Miguel. Okay. too much water's too cold um but so we do that and then we do portuguese long line which is um which is like vertical gear so we'll run like 50 hooks about one hook apart they're all pre-baited on rods and that's then, a lot of
0: fussing around in the boat
1: oh yeah we'll go through like multiple gear types in one day Depending on you know, what species that they were catching, so um, it actually doesn't really take up a lot of space that kind of fishing. So um, you know, I can meter around. You know, these rockfish at four or five hundred feet, they'll they'll school off the bottom for a couple hours a day. So as I'm you know watching my sonar, mm-hmm. maybe at ten thirty in the morning, all of a sudden they come off the bottom and they're eating, and I could you know th- you know throw in four or five you know fifty hookers. You know, straight off the bottom, and then they and buoy them off. Wait an hour or two, and they come back and pull them. And so that's
0: so it's like a trot line, like we used to do for catfish. I guess so. I've never used that, but yeah, we so, use a bleach bottle. Yep, with the hook. So when they tug on it, it sets the the buoyancy right. sets the hook, and there exactly yeah.
1: So we we have something like that, uh, except it's not like moving; it, it's anchored to the bottom yeah. with a weight. So, and that's what they call. Portuguese longline, and then we, uh, and then for black hot up in Santa Cruz, we do deep set longline where I pay about eight hundred bucks to get four thousand hooks, like professionally oh, baited, over about two miles of line. And how do you keep that line from getting tangled up? It does sometimes. You just got to really be careful where you set, what kind of ground, yeah. you, and the currents and the
0: kelp forests and everything else.
1: Well, no, we're setting really deep, so there's no. Oh yeah, no you know, we're setting like eighteen hundred feet. feet, like three hundred fathoms. So wow. So How do you haul
0: them up? You must have a winch or something.
1: Yeah, we have a hydraulic like power pack with a little five-horse Honda in it, and it powers like a little 10-inch, like an albacore wheel that we yeah. modified for a long line.
0: And how, like what's a haul on one of those lines, like
1: a couple so, hundred pounds? Um, no, um, like a good, a good haul, I might catch like 200 pounds of black eel rockfish, wow. maybe 150 pounds of uh, short spine thorny head. And about a seventeen, eighteen hundred pounds of black cod, so just over two thousand pounds on one. So, and the cool thing about the baiting and all that, like you can set in the morning, wait three and a half hours, and then pull, and you're in, you're done. Like we actually had a Santa Cruz. We're so close to the harbor because the shelf like drops off and the fishing yeah. is good that we'll we'll go set our gear, buoy it all off by like eight thirty in the morning. We go back in and take a nap and get coffee in the harbor. Yeah. And then we go back out about noon. And we we pull from, like, noon to 4 p.m., and then we're in at 5.
0: And then cleaning.
1: Yeah, and oh, then— you're,
0: you're spiking them, like, right away as they come out,
1: uh, huh? Yep. On the way up, like, well, you could GMA all the thorny heads, some of the black gill, and then about 600 pounds of the bigger black hod. And then, and then I have, you know— And not
0: the rest of them because there's—people don't know. There's not enough market for it yet because it's too— New a technique here? Yeah,
1: or? it depends on my market. I'm I'm not going to spend a lot of extra time. You know, I have a really good friend of mine in San Diego who comes up and and buys about eight hundred to nine hundred pounds of my of my little black cod. Yeah, and, and they just wouldn't appreciate. It. They don't know. Yeah, and the price doesn't like encourage me to you know put the extra work in. The yeah the fish is still amazingly fresh like we get oh yeah of course basically we drive all night on the 101 and get back into Oxnard about 7 a.m and we offload everything cleaned up done by noon it's like a 48 hour marathon wow. of like you know fishing and trailering about like 600 miles and you do that once a week or, uh, well, once it a depends once yeah a once a month, month. Yeah. weather permitting though wow
0: and so you've got buyers at the. Dark side, then.
1: Huh? Yeah. They, so, they know,
0: do you put out a call? How do they know? Yeah. So, or you have a group, you have different group texts for everything. That's
1: right. Huh? So, I have, there's like three different parts of my business because we're catching four to 6,000 pounds a month now. And, and it's all hook and line. I mean, we're using hooks and line, no nets, like that. We, um, I have, I have wholesalers. So, I have, I have like three wholesalers in Elia that I sell, like, you know, 200, like 150 to 400 pounds each. And then I have like five or six restaurants in L.A. that we deliver to. And then I have three or four restaurants here in the Ohio Valley. And then I have my retail farmer's market. So it's like a little bit of everything. And, and what that does is that it allows me to kind of control the market and the price. Because if you're just selling to a wholesaler, this is basically why there's very few you know, commercial fishermen left that are full time. Yeah. Especially hook and liners. Um, mm-hmm. Most of them are part time. I would probably say 85, 90% of hook and line commercial fishermen are part-time because they just can't afford at wholesale, at, you know, what a wholesaler is going to but pay. But you're on. out
0: there working the farmer's market, building relationships with your customers.
1: Totally. Mm-hmm. I ask them how, you know, how how it was last week, what they liked, if they didn't like anything, like if they want to see changes in what species. And, and
0: So that um, feedback loop gives you advantages over your competitors. Totally. I imagine.
1: And I'm really open to the feedback with chefs too. I like to have you know chefs on the on the boat at least once. Yeah. Let them know how we process. Yeah, and someone like Junior is going to give me feedback every time. Like if there was, I remember like a year and a half ago, I went out and and we sent him down fish. He was doing some work. Um, he was doing some chefing. and he called me at like eight fifteen the next morning. My phone's ringing, and he's like, "Hey, that fish you brought me yesterday, um, I, I you know, I tasted it and you iced it down too fast. Well, wow. That's very specific. Very specific. And so we went back through my process yeah. and was like, oh, yeah, it was like it was in the heavy ice, like two and a half hours before it should have. And that was a combination of factors where we were, where we were fishing. The fishing game was at the dock. He spent an hour and a half with me. I had to offload faster. And, and so but he could taste it like instantly. wow that's a well-developed palate. exactly so we so i take that feedback and then now next time something like that happens i can i can adjust my you know process my process Yeah. yeah
0: so i'm curious about what kind of weird fish come up out of the deep i don't know i got obsessed with this instagram account from some russian fisherman in the Barents sea which is basically the arctic and he's long lining down deep and he'd pull up these creepy looking oh, extraterrestrial yeah. looking creatures oh, yeah. oh, like yeah. weird stuff have you seen any weird stuff come off
1: the bottom i mean not not weird not weird i mean we you get like but like black cod i think long lining because you're out deep you know we're, we're fishing anywhere from 200 fathoms down to my fathom fathoms, is six feet. six feet so anywhere from like 1200 to three thousand Oh, and so we we will see like, you know, we'll see like six gill sharks come up or what uh, kind of sharks, six gill sharks. And so we, you know, we just cut the leaders and let them go. And then um, we'll see like big skate, spiny dogfish, um, ratfish that are weird looking like little rat teeth on them. And I mean, just weird oh, stuff, yeah. you, you know, that we were releasing. And so, um, but when they come up like that, don't their bladders
0: uh, pop right out there? No, that's how so. They, if you pull them up from that depth, how do you
1: do a safe release? Release. Really uh, so here's how it works: only fish that are schooling off the bottom are going to have a swim bladder. Okay. So like blackhod aren't a fish that schools off the bottom, so they don't have a sw- you know, swim bladder. So I can catch that fish at 3,400 feet, yeah. and if it if it shakes off the hook at the boat, it swims right back down. That's great. And it's like, see ya. So, so these fish are, are actually don't have a swim bladder. The only you know, f- you know, fish we're catching black cod long with us, you know, with a swim bladder are going to be like uh, certain you know, certain types of like deep water rock fish, which I want to keep actually. Yeah, so so we keep those fish, those
0: are prized. Yeah, exactly. does it we matter think. when the texture and the taste of the fish, the you know, individually, like, different depths and different oh, areas yeah. and currents? Oh, yeah. Could you tell, like, oh, yeah, that's an Anacapa taste or that's a, that's a, you know, Morro Bay or Santa Cruz? Like, does it happen?
1: Um Certain fish. Like, ocean whitefish can be a little tricky. If they're eating the wrong thing, the actual the meat gets bitter. I remember going out and fishing mm. the Osborne Bank maybe eight years ago commercially for whitefish just to try it because it was, like, the only species— Near the bottom that you can actually um, legally catch out there, and all the fish were all bitter. Hmm. So I basically am like, okay, well, whatever they're eating on the Osborne Bank, I can't fish there for whitefish. So, um so I've just learned, that, you know, on that species, you just got to be pretty like careful about what what they're mm-hmm. foraging, where them. you're fishing. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, so it's a very fertile foraging for fish around here oh is that because of the mix of the currents
1: mix of the currents and i think the management that we've you know that we've really like we have a management uh, structure now overlapping federal and state that we've really protected these stocks in the last 30 years i mean the 1990s, like the, it was getting bad. Yeah, it was getting bad, now. and they closed it. I mean, they closed so much off. They banned the inshore gill nets in 1990, um, and that went into oh, effect no. in 1994. Gill nets are so indiscriminate. They yeah, just take out exactly. seals
0: and dolphins and whatever.
1: And the fishing game didn't do that. The actual, uh, you know, the people pushed that through yeah, on the voting I had, ballot. I had Ted Danson,
0: well, not on a podcast before I was doing that, but interviewed him, and that was his big. Cause is the ocean watch. Yeah, totally. And over harvesting and bycatch, and just how, you know, the living in balance with all this bounty is people got to be in it together. Can't you right. just somebody, can't you be have these have a lot of respect Russian or Japanese trawlers just totally. grabbing all they can get in these factory factory boats. No. And so, factory ships.
1: What this has created, like, like, like I you're an artisan, artisanal producer absolutely like we catch a lot of fish but it's all very targeted and it's taken me years and years and years because i'm not trawling i'm hook and lining basically to like know yeah. where to fish when the fish move when they're hungry when they're not and, and um, they're so temperamental they can be really temperamental
0: yeah, it's weird you never know when i was a kid it used to be the sole lunar tables the position of the sun and moon would determine when the bites are and i think that oh yeah the tides just a bunch of no you know, no it's true it's like oh, you think it was the tides oh are gosh like now?
1: Yeah, a lot of times I'll have like like stacks of rockfish all over the meter, and we're catching, and all of a sudden everything's gone. All in and they're still there, like all oh, the fish are there, wherever they go. The bite. Yeah. And I look at the and I look at the tide chart. I'm like, oh yeah, we we just passed high tide a half an hour ago. Now it's now it's dropping out, and the fish are gone. So really, like learning all those little pieces and you know continually learning over the years for a hook and line fisherman is really important because all those things add up to when's good and when's not. So so we've, you know, we've eliminated a lot, a lot of gear types over the years, um, like like groundfish trawling and gill nets inshore. And, and then we've also, we now have like, you know, daily, weekly, bi-monthly catch limits and quotas per boat. So you got to stay on top of this all the time. Oh, right? all, all the time. Like I was just the last so couple So how do of they determine? Is
0: it, do they have somebody going around the docks and seeing like, oh, the... The Pacific whitefish catch has gone down, and maybe we gotta cut back on the be- or the harvest windows. And
1: yeah, so what what we're doing is is every pound of fish is landed on a fish ticket, right? And, and it's all electronically now, so I just entered it online. And so, um, but every pound of fish, they know, you know, commercially because it has to be entered on a fish ticket. And so, and then put it in the system with. Who is hours. this?
0: Not National Marine resources or whatever or is it this not yeah it's a, NIMS. it's NIMS. NIMS,
1: in national marine fisheries so and the state of california so they're they work together on this right it's actually a federal like like the fish tickets called ticks and it's it, it's run by like like a like a quasi government agency but it's um but the state and the federal use the same system so You know, so everything's entered in how many pounds, and then they're doing stock assessments all the time. And then they base how, like, what the allowable quota is, right? And then they're going to divvy it up into, like, you know, X amount for open access. That means anyone has, like, a certain, like, small quota they can do. If you have a federal permit, like I do, that's going to, like, you know, times by, like, two or three. Um, and then you have limited entry state permits. Like you know, I have like a deeper near shore rockfish state permit. Yeah. There's only 181 in the entire state of California. Oh really? And I so you got one it from
0: somebody that already had one. Yeah. But, it
1: cost me a lot of money.
0: <laughs> but, um, yeah. like a liquor license get passed on. Like a lot of bars, like that's their only real asset is their liquor. It's license, Right. That yeah. they can
1: sell for a hundred thousand dollars when yeah. they go of business. So basically you know, fishermen. A lot of our retirement is our is our permits, or maybe we want to pass it down to our children, yeah. because it's a limit. That's,
0: that's you. That is, uh Eric brought his daughter? And for that's sure, that's Autumn. We'll
1: Hi, Autumn. Hey, Autumn. Mm-hmm. Are you are
0: gonna be a fisherman when you grow up?
1: Yes. All right. Awesome. She wants to be a what? what? What do you want to be? An urchin diver. Yeah, she wants to be a sea urchin diver. So, oh we're, wow, we're, we're gonna get her in a, in the urchin lottery. She's finally able. Um, we're gonna get her urchin tending permit for two years, and when she's eighteen, she'll be in the urchin lottery. And, that's a hard, hard one to get. So she may be thirty years old before yeah. uh, she gets an urchin diving permit. But hopefully, wow. you know. One thinking day she'll about get it now, that's yeah.
0: that's the half the battle right there. Yeah, or maybe like three quarters of the battle actually. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I love about getting out on the ocean is just the casual encounters with the wildlife. I think I told you I was coming back from Anacapa Island and had a good day fishing, had some bear barracuda and stuff. It's really fun. Mm-hmm. And then these three blue whales surfaced right alongside oh, the boat yeah. and just blown away by the majesty of these creatures. They're huge. And then I just had this feeling like, wait, this is a 45-foot boat. That fish is 90-foot long. It's that twice whale. as long, yeah. And it could just, like, flip its tail and over we go. But yeah. these fish were... Or uh, Why do I keep calling them fish? These whales, these cetaceans, were just checking us out. Oh, yeah. Like, they're rolling up and eyeballing oh, us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really amazing. And the captain said they haven't been hunted in 60, 70 years. So these whales now, they lifespan 100 years or something. Totally, yeah. And they had never been hunted, so they've lost all their fear. So of they're humans, curious. Yeah. They're curious. Here's a boat with a bunch of people on it. And What's going out? on? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they can dive, like, 2,000 feet in, like, 10 seconds or something. It's Ridiculous. so crazy. It's and they're amazing. Their hearts are the size of a Volkswagen. Oh, my gosh. I've never seen anything more majestic than those creatures. I know. Man. And there's a the $45 fishing boat in the captain's corner. And now the deckhands will come around and collect the other 45 because, you know, the whale boats are 90 bucks And you guys got a bonus. And now we're going to collect. He was just joking, but not joking too much because that was quite an experience.
1: That's it's what I like—just accidental things. Absolutely, like we see dolphins and whales and killer whales, orcas and oh, really? I don't seals think they... and sea lions. Did and... you ever see a otter out there in Santa oh, yeah. Cruz? Oh yeah. No, I've seen them up at the Hollister Ranch a lot. Really, there's they're like a red zone yeah. And then... so they've
0: turned. Uh... Oh, they've turned they turn used the to be North uh, Conception, but now yeah. they're coming back down yeah, here. They Do they you think we're going to get
1: otters off the? I think off, I think off our th- islands. I think eventually. I mean, they definitely. You know, cold water, so they don't come down too far. But I think they showed back up at San Nicolas Island a little while ago. I mean, they're pretty... Otters are, like, they're cute and they're fuzzy. They also, like... Man, they just, like... Reduce fish stocks. Oh, like like shellfish stocks, like abalone. They will decimate, just totally decimate. It. Yeah. And they only eat, like... I think they only eat the guts or something like that. Oh, really? They're so
0: opportunistic eaters. Like a yeah, weasel only bites too. off a chicken's head.
1: Yeah, or, or something like that. And so... They, too, you know, fishermen that traditionally aren't real aren't, aren't, aren't real happy when the otters come around. It, it doesn't matter for me because I'm fishing, like, you know, in deep water. So, I'm like. You don't have to worry about seals coming around and stealing your catch. They don't like rockfish too much. No. Interesting. They, they're, like, spiky and spiny in there. Yeah. I I just don't, I don't have a lot of problem. I mean, they'll hang around the boat, and they jump, and they say hi for a minute, and they leave. Yeah. Um, so you don't they, have to chase them off with a paint gun. No. I've seen no. guys do that.
0: Too. No. <laughs> what no. about salmon? I know like some years ago, a long time ago, there was like a big bust because, you know, one of the Chinook salmon schools got all the way down in here. In fact, somebody even caught one off of Ventura Harbor. Oh,
1: 1995. It was the biggest salmon run Southern California has ever seen in my lifetime. I mean, there was so much king salmon um, for some reason. They they're like all rounded Point Conception. They were all down in Santa Barbara. Isn't that weird? It was well, like well, it seems like it's good feeding grounds for them. I know they don't
0: spawn in these rivers around here, but they're they go out all the way over to Kamchatka and the Bering Sea, and they go they
1: range. They're, they're all around. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a really healthy. It seems to be healthy, like a like a central northern California uh, king salmon fishery. Yeah, and so but not cohos
0: or no, the it's, other ones. The no, it's just some chums. And,
1: I, I don't think you can take those. He just can take the Chinook, the Kings. But um, Hmm. so I like when I'm in Santa Cruz, like in the spring and summer, black coding, I'll buy king salmon from a couple friends of mine that are fishing it. Uh, And I'll truck it back. Oh, yeah. I've seen your text
0: that, yeah, you picked up some salmon. Yeah. Like that's the perfect banquet food. Like if you've got 80 people you want to feed, have like a 40, 50 pound salmon all poached in a nice. Oh,
1: and California king salmon is unbelievable. It's unreal. It is like. The fattiest, like what they eat. I think they eat a lot of krill. It's yeah. like the deepest orange red color, and the, it's amazing. I mean, I just and it's, really, and and it's only a hook on and line fishery, and it's yeah. only barbless hooks. I mean, we're talking really like, barbless hooks, and it's and it's Burks. all trawl. Yeah, yeah. So it's all they're just like trolling with anchovies these hooks.
0: or mackerel. What are they fishing with first?
1: No, days? they're just lures. That's it. Oh, so they they have to be hungry. They have to eat. And it's barbless hooks only. It's the most sustainable fishery like that I can imagine. And and there's a limited entry permit, so there's only X amount of permits in the state. I haven't seen you with salmon much lately, so it's just well, the no. salmon uh, commercial season doesn't open until May first, and they only have like I think they have like ten days to fish in May. That that's it. And if it's windy for ten days, it's blown out. It's blown out. So it's and and they're doing like you know they see how much is running up the rivers. They see how much you know, how much like salmon, f- you know, fry there were from the last couple of years. And they make all these like projections every year and then they change it throughout the year. And then they say, okay, you can fish like 10 days in May and you can fish eight days in June and then 12 days in July. And then they're watching how much, you know, salmon comes up and they're adjusting yeah. it. I mean, they v- it's highly regulated.
0: Well, I know in Oregon, the wild salmon stocks are... Just decimated. It's been really bad what's happening. I don't know what the answer is. I know over-harvesting the forests and the silting in the tributary streams. Yep. But I used to follow this biologist back in the... He was writing heavily in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, Roderick Haig Brown. Mm-hmm. And he talked about this experiment on the Salmon River that went by his house in British Columbia. And it wasn't like a place you could fish, but the fish... It was like pea gravel in this bend of the river, and he took corrugated drain pipes or uh, what do they call those ones that go along the edge of the roof, the the half pipes?
1: the gutters, yeah.
0: Gutters. He took these tin gutters and punched a bunch of holes in them, buried them in the pea gravel so the current would percolate up underneath Mm -hmm. them. And then when the fish spawned on it, it bathed them in oxygen.
1: Nice. So
0: the, whatever the hatching, what do you call that, gestation or... Was yeah. like exponentially better. Oh, totally. And then within two or three years, this creek that only had like, you know, maybe thirty or forty of the silvers or yeah. cohos, would get mm-hmm. up to where he was, hundreds of them. That's cool. Immediately, just like improving the egg spawning right. made enormous difference. I'd like to see more projects like that. Totally. I think. I mean, I've seen I've seen the steelhead in the Ventura River at oh, the yeah. junction pool. Oh yeah. And they're pretty good-sized fish. The ones I saw were like seven, eight pounds.
1: How long ago was that? A long time ago. That was like
0: six or seven years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what was interesting, they were fully colored, which meant, you know, and they're silver when they come up out of the river. And this was like late spring this is like may or something Mm -hmm. so they'd been up and had their spawn and they were stuck in that junction pool waiting for whatever i mean they probably Mm -hmm. didn't get back out to the ocean oh yeah but they're beautifully colored fish not the fresh run silver at all so they got up there and they'd done their spawn Mm -hmm. either san antonio creek or whatever Mm -hmm. they used to get all the way up into middle fork and matilla oh yeah i mean i remember pretty pretty vibrant fishery right here in ojai
1: in the 90s, you know, you know, I grew up in Santa Barbara in the 90s. I um, I think they, 97 or 98 is when steelhead were, you know, Southern California steelhead were declared endangered. But before that, it was, you could still fish in the coastal creeks. Yeah. And um, and there was still, you know, steelhead like Mission Canyon, a hot springs, you know, creek, or cold springs in Montecito. Um, yeah. Yeah um rattlesnake canyon and so it was a release only so you had to catch a release um but i remember cooking a lot of big fish in there before they but closed how much, it But
0: how fun it would be to catch a big old fish out of this tiny little oh creek. yeah so fun. that was when i was a kid that was the most fun my cousin and i caught two steelhead in this creek that was kind of frozen over and we had to pick the ice up move it off and then we climbed out on a log and then you just tickle them and they get their gills flapping then you run your hand up their gills (laughs) man that was the most fun i've ever had fishing was just catching those we caught both of them they were like a spawning pair they probably got off their spawn but so delicious and i
1: mean to bring that home like we were like 10 or 11 years old we were king of the world oh yeah and i think those like as I talk to people, about, you know, fishing, and they, you know find out I'm a fisherman. Everyone's got like a fishing story. a fishing story that's so in, embedded in their consciousness. It's such a powerful experience for people, like catching, like watching the fish like die, or being a you know, part of this process, and then going home and eating it, like like with their uncle or their dad or their friend or 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 by themselves. But it's such a powerful experience that is so ingrained in our consciousness that like. Everyone wants to tell me their, like, their favorite fishing story, yeah. but it's cool. Did your dad can...
0: teach you how to fish?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I remember catching like my first fish in this thing in this river when I was like five years old with my dad. And he spearfished a lot off the beach, so he, he got me into spearfishing when I was like... Or halibut. Halibut, rockfish, you know, perch, calico bass, you know, stuff like that. So I, I did a lot of recreational spearfishing in my 20s and 30s. That was fun. Really fun.
0: You got a, I heard that if you're down there for you know just even a few minutes the fish just snap right back to whatever they were doing they just accept your presence
1: and that's that's the secret it's just yeah it's just to act like you're not hunting yeah your spearfishing is and actually they they get really comfortable after a while so but yeah but that's cool everyone has a fishing story yeah it's i like, taught my son how to fish he was
0: hooked when he was like three four years old he insisted that we call him fishing boy and game. he's in his thirties now. He still loves yeah. to fish. We, it's we great. try to get back to Western New York and go see a Buffalo Bills game and go catch some steelhead. Totally every fall. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Right. you Connect it at connect. that level. I think it's like the fishing line is that connection to whatever hunter gatherer past. It's that we have.
1: powerful. It's a powerful primal thing. Um, my you know my great great grandfather was a was a fisherman at all, out of Norway, Oslo, he was lost at sea, like, right before 1900. Oh, man. But because um, I'm Norwegian. Mainly. So you
0: got that in your blood. It's,
1: like, part of your my your... DNA. I feel yeah. it. Like, I can feel, like, that connection with, um, you know, with him, like, even across the world. Like, understanding that that the ocean is a powerful place that my body over the years has has really connected with. Like, like if I don't fish for a week and a half, I get a little bit, like, jumpy. Yeah, it's something that I need to go be on the water. How often do you eat fish a week? I was like twice a week. Twice a week. Yeah.
0: Well, the more we learn about that particular type of protein and those omega 3 fats about like preventing Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. and lowering the inflammation, and it seems like most of what we're finding about nutrition is. Whatever lowers inflation or inflammation is gonna be good. It's gonna be good, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's a key source. Yeah. It's, like really hard to replace. I know they have vegan forms of omega threes, but ain't nothing like a big old slab of delicious ling cod with just a or tiny black bit of cod. That, black yeah, cod. Yeah, that's the highest omega that's like one of the
1: highest omega threes. Oh man. Fish, yeah. It's really good for you. It's um and then wild fish, you know, they're eating you know, you know, shrimp and octopus and squid and mackerel and sardines and anchovies, and they're eating like what they're supposed to eat. Right? Yeah, where farm-raised fish, there's antibiotics. There's um, very controlled. Well, I, know, I know that there's talk of, you know, anytime you're
0: feeding, anytime there's like cannibal situations, like with mad cow disease. where yeah. the problem in these these. uh not abattoirs, well, they were hosing down the abattoirs, packaging up all that, put it in the cow feed, yeah, and that's where we got the mad cow disease. I have a feeling it's like with the salmon because that's one of their primary constituents is the leftovers from the processing. they refeed it to those so salmon crazy. and just it was like salmon stay away salmon from, from farm raised
1: fin fish farm raised fin fish, I'm like, I warn people against um, yeah. uh, farm raised shellfish is a different thing. So, yeah, because oysters there's clams, place like oh in oh the that.
0: ocean water and it's just like these towers that they grow on and yeah. it's perfectly natural. Like jolly oyster down there, those guys have their own you know, proprietary yeah. source. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. yeah, exactly. And so like Morro Bay has a couple big oyster farms and it's really cool. It's like that type of, of you know shellfish farming is really sustainable and healthy. Like like they're cleaning and they're, yeah. Like they're doing. Yeah, well, they their are cleaners.
0: They're filtering the water. Like We're, they're an important part of the ecosystem. Exactly. So,
1: <clears throat> but farm raised fin fish, um, I have yet to see one that's um, that seems like it's healthy and sustainable.
0: Yeah, they have weird diseases and stuff that they get. Whirling disease
1: and oh, totally strange,
0: strange stuff. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So we're coming up on an hour. Can you believe it? Amazing. <clears throat> so what, anything else? Thursday farmer's market. And I, I want to post something up in the notes about this process. Okay. It's it'sikawa. How do you pronounce that? Ikejime. Ikejime. <laughs> Ikejime, yeah. Give people a little more information yeah. about that in the notes when I post up this episode. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I have a lot of you know customers coming back on Thursdays being like, that was the most amazing fish. I actually like forgot it for a week in the back of my fridge and I you know, pulled it out of the bag and I thought it was going to be stinky, but it was perfect. Yeah. Nikajima just like it preserves that fish at its prime for so long. So, yeah.
0: That's, that's awesome. I'm glad to have learned that. Yeah. All right, Eric. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Brett. We'll talk soon. Okay. Hey, this is Brett Bradigan, just thinking out loud. Now, the conversation with Eric and his daughter, who is here, is really interesting in the sense that. I see the excitement that both his daughters have for their father's career, which is really very hard work. Now, in my line of business, it's not hard work. I've had hard jobs back I Doug Graves for six years. So why my kids have no interest in what I do is one of those things that perplexes me. They could be photographer, writer, editor, fashion model. My daughter's plenty beautiful enough to be a fashion model. They could just sell ads, going around, doing business functions. There's a million things they could do, and it's hard for me not to take it personally. But then I think, wait a minute, my dad was a farmer and a grave digger. I have zero interest in doing either one of those things. So while I'm a little jealous of Eric for having kids who are attracted to his line of work, I'm also understanding why my kids would not. In any event, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.